Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. We're in the thick of the Advent season, just about a week away from Christmas, and I'm excited to be here with Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey, Brandon, good to see you. How you doing? How are the kids? I'm doing well. We're doing okay. The kids, of course, love Advent. They love lighting the candles, love getting yeah. ready for Christmas. I remember maybe it was a couple years ago, a year ago here on the podcast, and I had asked you around Christmas time, what was your favorite Christmas oh, gift yeah. that you got as a child? What, what was it? It was like a little robot or something? Yeah, from the, the show Lost in Space, which I loved when I was a kid, like That's in the right. mid-60s. Yeah, so and I were, said, I woke yeah. up one morning and I came down and there was the little at the time, we thought it was super high tech, this little robot from uh, Lost in Space. And so there was a gentleman listening. And so, I don't know how he did it, but he found that that little model and still in its packaging and sent it to me. So I've got it downstairs now. So <laughs> in I, my I guess the question is what Christmas gift from your childhood do you want next that you want to yeah. mention here on air? Um, <laughs> like a, <laughs> a BB gun or Red Rocket? No, I remember this. This is, of course, is totally out of low tech. Now, it was a big deal. My father bought us a um, a little tape recorder, you know, with the two reel thing, and and he recorded a little message for us that this is not a toy, and I, you know, <laughs> and so and his voice came over, and we were just amazed. We thought this was the coolest, most space age kind of thing. So I remember, I do remember that gift, but don't send me a reel to reel. <laughs> yeah, so if you, if you want to give Bishop Barron a tape recorder, we'll have the address at the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, today we're going to talk about the Church Fathers. We're calling this <laughs> Church Fathers 101, kind of just an introductory, introductory episode to the Fathers. Lots of people have been writing in to me asking, hey, can you do something on them? Because Bishop Good. Barron mentions them all the time. Read the Fathers, go back to the Fathers. You mentioned particular Fathers, um, but, but what should we know about them? So that's the thrust of today's episode. And yeah. maybe we start there. What do we mean when we say church fathers? What regions and dates are we talking about? Let me just preface it with a, a little a tribute. Um, this goes back many years. I'm a first year student at Mundelein Seminary. And I was, you know, intellectually alert kind of person. Everyone knew that I was very interested in theology and that I love St. Thomas Aquinas. So I didn't make a secret of that. But one of my teachers was the great sister Agnes Cunningham. And Agnes is still alive. She's in her, I think, mid-90s now. And Agnes was a remarkable person. She was the first woman to receive a doctorate from the Institut Catholique in Lyon. She was the first female president of the Catholic Theological Society of America back in the 1970s, maybe. And she taught patristics at Mundelein, the study of the church fathers. So I remember one day, maybe it was at lunch or she was in a, in a you know, more casual setting. She said to me, now, dear Bob, uh, we all know that you love St. Thomas Aquinas and that's wonderful, but you will never be a theologian until you learn the church fathers. And uh, she said it with great, you know, love. It wasn't some kind of terrible challenge. Uh, and I've, I've never forgotten that. And I think she was dead right about that. At the time I had maybe read Augustine a bit, you know, uh, but the other great fathers, I knew almost nothing about them. And I've, I've never forgotten Sister Agnes's uh, uh, encouragement. And I think it's correct that you really won't be a theologian until you learn these great figures. Now, to get back to your question, who are they? What are we talking about when we say the fathers? We're talking, I would say, roughly a 500-year period. Let's say from the very early second century, so the early part of the 100s, up to maybe the early part of the 7th century. So about a 500-year period. Uh, 
we're talking both East and West. So I mean, Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity. So from, let's say, Syria and Palestine, that area, all the way to the West. Who are some of the figures? Well, one way to divide them is, is Eastern fathers and Western fathers, right? Those who are more on the Eastern end of the Mediterranean and those on the West. Um, among the Eastern fathers, think of figures such as Origen, uh, John Chrysostom, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, Basil the Great, Gregory Nazianzus, Maximus the Confessor, Western fathers, Augustine, of course, most famously, uh, Tertullian, Ambrose, uh, Hilary of Poitiers, um, those figures. One of my favorite is one that kind of bridges the gap between East and West, namely Irenaeus, because Irenaeus is born in Smyrna. He's, he's the Bishop of Smyrna, which is in the East side of the empire but then makes his way to Rome, eventually becoming Bishop of Lyon in France. So he is born an Easterner, dies a Westerner. His writing is very influenced by the Eastern uh, style. So those are the people we're talking about. Let's say the first uh, or those centuries from the second to the seventh, these great teachers, writers, pastors, theologians who set the tone for much of Christian life and thought. Those are the fathers. Yeah, maybe an obvious follow-up then. Why should we pay attention to these church fathers? Why would Sister Agnes say that you can't just read the scholastics like Aquinas? You can't just read contemporary theologians. You need to be reading the theologians of the first 500 years. It's like saying I could be a philosopher without reading uh, Plato and Aristotle. I mean, you, you can't. How could you possibly say you're a philosopher if you've not read the people that set the tone for the whole of philosophy? You know, when Alfred North Whitehead famously said that all philosophy is a footnote to Plato, that's what he meant, that Plato posed the questions in a way that everyone's been asking ever since. Well, the, the first great theologian, Paul, the apostle, but then in the wake of Paul, I'd say it's the fathers who set the tone and framework for all of Christian theology. Uh, I, I can't really understand what came after them without understanding what they bequeathed to us. I'd also say, Brandon, their proximity to the beginnings. Now, again, not to make a, a sort of fetish of, of the beginning of things, but these figures that were very close, in the case of the so-called apostolic fathers, those who, who knew the apostles or, or, or friends of the apostles directly. But then, you know, looking at these, these early centuries, people much closer to a biblical frame of reference, to a biblical way of thinking. Well, how could you not say they're hyper-important figures to read? Here's a third observation. And I think this is so important. Our distinctions between the pastoral, the spiritual, and the theological didn't exist in those days. They, that distinction wouldn't have made sense to Origen, Augustine, Chrysostom, Jerome, Hilary of Poitiers, Maximus. If you had said, St. Maximus, distinguish between your spirituality and your theology, I don't think he'd know what you were talking about. Even if you said, oh, now Augustine, distinguish between your theology and your biblical um, uh, sensibility. I don't you know what that even means. Theology is, is an elaborated commentary on the Bible. Um, more to it, none of these people was an academic in our sense of the term. So, see, we divide these things out. you got pastors, you've got spiritual writers or spiritual teachers, and then you have 
uh, academics in universities. Well, those didn't exist in those days. Augustine, the greatest theologian in the West, is a pastor. He's he's Bishop of Hippo, you know, but don't think of Hippo as like New York or Paris or you know, some some great ecclesiastical establishment with, with great corporate identity. Think of it more along the lines of a of a big busy parish, you know. That's Augustine. He's a pastor of a parish who's leading his community of priests in the spiritual life and often late at night by candlelight and dictating the secretaries, writing some of the seminal works in Western philosophy and theology. What I love about that is the coming together of these elements that we tend to separate out tragically. In fact, wasn't it last week we talked about that, you know? Um, that the dumbing down of our faith has been a pastoral disaster. Yeah, Augustine, I think, would have said, obviously, you know, obviously. Here's one of the great pastors of the Western Church is also its greatest theologian, and I would say greatest spiritual master. Yeah, of course, they all belong together. That's an important reason to read these figures. When I was a Protestant college student, I was encouraged to read the Church Fathers. And the suggestion was because, look, these guys were so close to the original mm -hmm. apostles. They either knew the apostles or people who knew the apostles, et cetera. Like, read them, see what the early church was like. And when I did, like many future converts to Catholicism, I discovered how breathtakingly Catholic mm -hmm. a lot of yeah. the early church was. Um, yeah. I run a website. I don't, I don't know if I've told you about this, actually, Bishop, but uh, churchfathers.org, churchfathers.org. And it collects a lot of quotes and excerpts from the church fathers, but arranges them categorically around uh, topics that divide Catholics and Protestants, things like Mary, the saints, the Pope, the bishops, and Eucharist. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And when again, when you read through them, it gives you just a jolt of confidence as a Catholic to see how much continuity there is between these church fathers and the church we find ourselves in today. Absolutely. And what you say, so many have witnessed to that, uh, that it's in a way it's dangerous for Protestants to read the fathers because it tends to lead them in a more Catholicizing direction. Now, to be fair, you know, the great reformers claimed the fathers. Think of both Luther and Calvin claimed Augustine. Calvin said, Augustine, he's all ours. They thought Augustine summed up, you know, Protestant theology. So they certainly relied on the church fathers and they were deeply suspicious of the scholastics. You know, they had, they had received that medieval tradition and they were very skeptical of it and they appealed to the fathers. But, you know, I'm with you, obviously, and I, I've seen it happen over and over again, that when Protestants read the church fathers, they, they tend to uh, notice how Catholic they sound. Let's talk about the Second Vatican Council and its relation to patristics, the study of the fathers. We've talked yeah. in past podcasts about how one of the aims of the Second Vatican Council was to revive study of both the Bible and the fathers. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe a, a two-parter. One, why had the fathers sort of fallen out of favor before Vatican II or weren't emphasized as much as they should have been? And then what did Vatican II envision for this revival of patristics? They're both complicated questions. Uh, the first one, you know, I speak, as you know, as a great disciple of and, and uh, advocate of St. Thomas Aquinas. I, I love St. Thomas Aquinas. He was the door into the whole spiritual thing for me. I've made a study of Thomas central to my whole life. I mean, so I, I love Aquinas. Um, there's, I think, a comparison between Aquinas and 
Michelangelo. And here's what I mean. Michelangelo was such a, a monumental figure in, in the arts. It's as though all of art go back to, you know, from the, the uh, uh, early times, all the way up through people like Giotto and others. And that somehow it reached such a, a climactic e expression in, a, in a Michelangelo. Like people looked at the Sistine Chapel and they thought, well, what, what more can I do? I mean, that's it. And so art fell into what they call now a mannerist period. It was kind of a somewhat decadent period because artists were, were flailing about. <laughs> like, well, what do I do? How can I possibly improve on that? It happens sometimes in the wake of these really great figures. Well, here's my analogy. Aquinas, 13th century, the great Sume and everything. A lot of theologians thought, well, what do we do now? I mean, this guy, this genius, has answered every question. <laughs> He's, they're pretty good. They're these convincing arguments. What, what can we do? Well, we get into the commentary tradition following Thomas, all sorts of people commenting. Now, bring it all the way up to the, the 19th and into the 20th century. You have the sort of neo-scholastic uh, movement. I'm oversimplifying. But see, my point is there was a kind of mannerism that took over in theology where people didn't quite know what to do beyond this great master. There were a number of figures. Now, go back to the 19th century in Germany, someone like Johann Adam Müller, someone like um, Matthias Josef Schäben, and then in England, John Henry Newman. What were they doing? They were all going back to the church fathers and finding something extraordinarily fresh, almost like, like forgotten treasures. And, and their work started a renewal. And you see it clearly in the 19th century, but then very clearly in the 20th century, as people like Henri de Lubac and Jean Danielu and Josef Ratzinger and Karl Adam and uh, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar and many others follow that lead and begin to explore the sources. And by the sources here, I mean the church fathers and the great source from which they came, the Bible. And these thinkers were finding something extraordinarily fresh in this re-exploration of the fathers. So that's part of the, the general patristic revival going on. Now, specify Vatican II. What was a major concern of the Catholic theology of roughly 300 years before Vatican II? I would say it was the great battle with Protestantism. It was the, if you want, counter-reformational approach. So the Protestant rebellion, 1517, uh, the questioning of all these great doctrines. And so Catholic theology becomes a very combative attempt to, to respond to these you know, criticisms. It begins to occur to some of these 20th century figures, I think. De Lubac comes to mind, especially. Balthazar too. Is, you know, maybe a better approach is if we went, as it were, back behind the Reformation back behind the scholastic period and went all the way to, let's say, the 4th century or the 3rd century or the 2nd century before the 1054 split between East and West, 
before the 1517 split between North and South, if you want, Protestant Catholic. What if we rediscovered this, this fertile ground where, where all Christians stood together in a way? What we all had in common was this great patristic consensus. Might that be a more hopeful approach? And I think that did animate a lot of the thinkers of Vatican II. It was a, a concern for a deep ecumenism, uh, some common ground behind the things that had divided us so uh, fully. Um, but as you say, we're opening up a really complicated set of questions, but I think that was at least part of the motivation. I think one thing we contemporary Catholics take for granted is how we're living in a golden age of accessibility to the <clears throat> church fathers. You know, yeah. from Newman and Pusey's English translations of the fathers, De Lubac was instrumental in converting and uh, translating them a lot of them to French. And then now the internet, you can find any writing by any church father in just a couple seconds. I mean, this is something that for hundreds of years, nobody would have had access to. For Thomas Aquinas to be able to pull up quotes from church fathers was almost impossible, right? Yeah. Well, and he had access, you know, through a number of sources. And Thomas uh, was deeply patristic. Now, let, let me bring another part of the story in. Um, is there a kind of neo-scholastic Aquinas? And I, I don't want to get, I don't want to pick on him because I, I love Gary Lagrange. I have a lot of his books downstairs in my office. I read him with great profit. But was there a tendency in the neo-scholastic period to read Thomas in a hyper-rationalized way, putting a very strong stress on the Aristotelian dimension, the, the uh, abstractly philosophical dimension of Aquinas, that overlooked the Aquinas who was deeply involved with Augustine, deeply involved with the pseudo-Dionysius. Now, Dionysius, a fifth century Syrian monk, Eastern in his perspective, massively influential on St. Thomas Aquinas. Gregory of Nyssa, very influential. Um, St. John Chrysostom, remember the famous story of Aquinas, you know, hey, wh what wouldn't you give to have that whole city of Paris? Oh, I'd give it all for that those Chrysostom manuscripts on St. Matthew. My point here is Thomas was deeply influenced by the church fathers. That tended to get uh, filtered out by a hyper-rationalistic philosophical reading of them. Um, I'll, I'll make this more personal. Uh, when I'm in Paris many years ago studying uh, for my doctorate and studying Aquinas, I wrote on Aquinas and Paul Tillich on creation. Uh, my great master was Michel Corbin, and Michel Corbin was a disciple of Henri de Lubac. And Corbin, in seminar after seminar, would have us read Aquinas, but then we'd go back and read Bernard, sometimes seen as the last of the fathers, you know, uh, we'd read Gregory of Nyssa, we'd read Augustine, we'd read Origen, we'd read uh, Maximus the Confessor to show the loamy patristic background of what Thomas was doing. So that's how I was formed. And uh, I think that's a very important part of the way we're recovering Aquinas now to show how deeply connected to that world he was. 
you know, when I was planning out this episode, I wanted to save some time at the end where we could focus on specific church fathers. I think we probably don't have time to do all of them, but here's maybe what I'll propose is we'll do the apostolic fathers in this episode. And I'll explain what that means in a second. And then maybe we'll do a part two episode where we spend a little more time on some of the other significant church fathers. So maybe for the rest of this episode, let's, let's focus on these apostolic fathers. So these would be church fathers that either they themselves personally knew the apostles or they knew people who knew the apostles, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. I, as a Protestant, never remembered hearing that I could read writings by people who were in the second generation of Christians. I thought it was kind of, you know, Paul and the other writers of the New Testament and then zip forward 1500 years. And that was kind of the the next place we turn. Um, (laughs) But let's spend a little time here. Some of the names include saints like St. Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, Give us an idea of who some of these figures are and what are some of their main contributions. Well, those three are all important from a personal standpoint, not as important from a literary standpoint. So we're going to get to the fathers who write these massively important literary works. Clement, of course, is uh, the third uh, bishop of Rome, uh, is bishop toward the end of the first century. Uh, knew, uh, if, if not Peter, people that knew St. Peter, he writes a letter to the uh, church in Corinth, which Paul had founded. And it's a lengthy and interesting letter. Uh, he's a martyr, as almost all the first popes were. So Clement uh, grounds us, as we read his letter even today, he grounds us in a very ancient time. Ignatius, of course, on his way to be uh, executed um, for his Christian faith, he's thrown to the lions in Rome. And on his way, he writes a series of letters that are absolutely beautiful and extraordinary from a personal standpoint, as he's saying basically, hey, don't get my way. This is what I want. I, I, I want to join the Lord, you know. But they're also witnessing to the early structure of the church. And so the ecclesiology, to use that technical term, uh, that's in place even now, you can see the beginnings of it in someone like uh, Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, Polycarp, fascinating figure. Of course, another martyr, uh, dies as a very old man. 86 years old. And we know from that, that Polycarp, who he said all his life had been a Christian. It's very interesting because if we do the dating right, his parents, so if, if all his life he was a Christian, he must've been born and raised a Christian. His parents were probably evangelized by Paul because it's such an early figure. Who else was, was making people Christians at that early, early time? So here's Polycarp. Bishop of Smyrna, and he dies a martyr. But what I find most interesting is Polycarp taught the very young Irenaeus, and we'll get to him eventually. Maybe my favorite of the church fathers, if I'm going to go all, you know, if I'm going to be that specific. Um, But Irenaeus says, I was taught by Polycarp, who was taught by John. And, And as you say, Brandon, that kind of takes your breath away. As we read this extremely developed theology, Irenaeus, one of the first and greatest theologians, period, he's two generations away from John the Apostle. And the clear implication, it seems to me, when he says, I was taught by Polycarp, who was taught by John, is what I'm telling you in this highly sophisticated theology is basically what John was teaching. Don't believe people when they say, Oh, theology is a distortion of the of the beautiful simplicity of the gospel. That people like Harnock and others in the early 20th century made that, to my mind, stupid argument. Uh, 
I was taught by Polycarp, who was taught by John, and I'm giving you this elaborated theology, yeah, which is in pure continuity with the Apostle John, who rested his head on the breast of the Lord, you know? That's what I find so fascinating about, about Polycarp. You know, maybe, I know we're coming to the end of our time, Sister Agnes Cunningham, whom I mentioned, and I'll pay tribute to her again. Agnes had, we used to tease her, uh, the gift of tears. She, she would weep very readily, right? And she'd be very moved by the stories of the church fathers. Well, the one that always made her cry was the story of the martyrdom of Polycarp. She would tell us that story of, of Polycarp's death, which is beautifully recounted in the early church. And it always made her cry. Uh, so I, I, I feel happy to pay tribute to her again, the, the woman who really opened the door for me into this uh, wonderful patristic world. Maybe a, a few book recommendations here. If you haven't really read much of the Church Fathers, uh, again, I mentioned there's a, this is a golden age of material. You can find so much in the publishing world. Um, Penguin has a, a nice anthology called Early Christian Writings, which contain writings from all the Apostolic Fathers we just mentioned. Also, the Didache, which is maybe the earliest non-biblical Christian text that we have. Um, so that's a good place. Mike Aquilina, the Catholic writer, has a book called Introduction to the Church Fathers, which tells a little bit about each one and then has excerpts. Pope Benedict XVI, over, uh, I think, several months, preached a series of homilies on they're the marvelous. Church Fathers. Yeah, they're and I think he has like one, one homily, sometimes two homilies on each one of the fathers, and they've been collected into book form. And I think several different publishers have released them. And then finally, you may have seen these famous books in the background of Bishop Barron's YouTube videos. They have a black spine, but they're called the Ancient Christian Commentary Series. And it's a massive undertaking. But what they've done is they've lined up the whole Bible. They have one volume for every book of the Bible. And they have the biblical passage and then commentary excerpts from church fathers up and down the centuries. So you can read the Bible through the lens of the church fathers. So maybe check out some of those volumes as well. Well, it's time now for our question from our listener. We love hearing from you guys. If you have a question for Bishop Barron, send it in. Just visit askbishopbarron.com. You can record your question and we'd love to hear it. Today, we hear from Bethany in New York, and she's asking about a couple of the theological virtues. Here's her question. Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Bethany, and I am asking from New York, and my question is on virtues. Hmm. So in the sense of virtues, what is the difference between faith and hope? And how would living a hopeful life differ from living a life of faith? Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, good. Thank you for that. Um, of course, faith and hope are both what they call theological virtues. We have the cardinal virtues, uh, which are the classical virtues. Uh, they can be acquired through habituation. So I can become more courageous, more prudent, more just, etc. But the theological virtues come as a gift. They, they can't be habituated. You can't act your way toward them. They come as a gift. They're called theological also because they order us to God. So faith, Aquinas calls it the, the door. It's, it's the door that opens onto the reality of God. Is without faith, you can't be pleasing to God. The Bible says, well, well that's, that's what it means. Is faith is what fundamentally opens you to the reality of God. Now, what's hope? Well, hope has to do with the final fulfillment of our friendship with God. To say I have hope is to say I look toward and long for 
with confidence my fulfillment in God. So it has to do with the with the eschaton, with my own fulfillment. And even you might say the fulfillment of, of the world. To live in hope is therefore to live your whole life under the aegis of the confidence that you're called and summoned to ultimate union with God. Um, it holds off despair. See, and, and it's so easy if, if you don't have this theological virtue to say, well, all right, here's my life. And yeah, I'm accomplishing this and that. But in the grand scheme of things, who cares? It's all going to just, I'm going to die. It's all going to fade away. The whole universe will fade into nothingness. And so what? You know, um, to live in hope is to say, no, there's an ultimate purpose to my life. And I look with confidence toward the fulfillment of my friendship with God. And so it colors the whole of your life. You know, it also, it, it affects the way you experience negativity. So bad things are happening to me, but yet I have hope that God has a purpose and I'm being called to union with God. That colors the way I look at the negative things in my life. Well, thanks for that question, Bethany. Thanks to all of you for listening. I mentioned that we kind of had to cut this episode short. We didn't get to all the other church fathers we wanted to talk about. So we'll definitely do a part two where we'll look at some figures like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen, Jerome, Augustine, and many others. So look forward to that part two next week. Um, but until then, we wish you a continual happy Advent and an upcoming Merry Christmas. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. Thank you.